Did the Brits make it? Are the Brits here? I rode on a plane with them yesterday. Well, they might be here this morning. What about Tylen and Karen Blancett? Are y'all here somewhere? Where are you? Oh, there they are. That was Karen right behind me. Hello, Pastor Tylen. Good to have you down from Tennessee. It's good to see you. Tylen served on our staff for a number of years and, and then took a pastorate. So we're glad to have him here today. I have just returned from the 60th anniversary celebration for my parents. They've been married 60 years, 13 children, 66 grandchildren, and 30 great-grandchildren. And the uh, reunion had 140 people in it. <laughs> so that part about be fruitful and multiply, we got that one. And we have been fruitful and we have multiplied. And they, we have multiplied and multiplied. But we had a great time. And one of the things that struck me about the reunion, what we do when we have a reunion is we sing. And so yesterday morning from 10 to 12, we sang. And the different families get up and sing. And then starting about 1.30 till I had to leave about 3 o'clock, we sang some more. And we just sang and sang. And two of the songs that were sung were written for my father and mother. And we were celebrating the faith that my father and mother have embraced and so vigorously promoted and defended and passed on to their children in uh, just a, uh, a, an extraordinary way. And it was a marvelous moment to be there in that celebration of faith and hope and love that was their 60th anniversary and a remembrance to the day when my father went to a revival meeting in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, heard the gospel, and for the first time in his life it dawned on him what the scriptures meant about salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. He went to the altar, that's how they did it in the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, which we were part of when I was a boy, and he knelt there and he prayed and asked Christ to forgive his sin and to come into his life and to be his Savior. And when he got through with that prayer, he noticed there was a woman beside him and it was the childhood friend who rode the bus with him, Donna Reith Miller. And she was kneeling beside him at the altar and God said, you're to marry her. Now look, that's God's prerogative. If he wants to do that, he can. And uh, maybe some people thought it wouldn't last. They were both young. But it's lasted 60 years. And uh, they sang a duet yesterday that was just unbelievable. At 79 and 78. And Dad, it's so hard to sing when you've had heart failure and your heart's working at 20%, you know, just barely pumping. And he wept all the way through the song. I don't know if there was a dry eye in the room. A song of praise to Jesus. And he told all of his family, he said, if you, if you will do one thing, this is what I want you to do. You say, Grandpa, great-grandpa, what do you want us to do with our lives? This is the one thing. Love Jesus. Receive him as Savior, that's the one thing. The one thing I want for you, hope for you, and pray for you. 
is that you know Christ as Savior and Lord. Life is about knowing Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, maybe you came to this room and you're still a seeker. You're wondering what life is about. You're looking for the answer. Well, we are people who believe Jesus is the answer, not only in our life, but in your life. That he's the answer not just for me because that's the way I'm bent. He's the answer because that's how God planned it and purposed it for every individual on the planet, including you. We believe this is God's plan. It's what God did. And we're not necessarily to be seekers. We believe the way has come to us in Jesus of Nazareth. And so we are confronted by the way. When I go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning, it may feel like a disconnect from what Jesus has done for us because it's such a practical passage that I'm about to read in this beautiful letter. But the letter is beautiful in part because it is practical, because it deals with real-life issues about you and where you are and what you're going to do with what God has given you. And the whole chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the whole chapter is the Apostle Paul talking about an offering that he is seeking to collect. And I want us to read from verse 16. And when we read to the end of this chapter, over the last three weeks, we'll have read the entire chapter. But Paul is not through talking about giving. I'm through talking about preaching, uh, uh, giving myself in these three messages. But in chapter 9, if you wanted to go on and read chapter 9, you would discover some more instruction, just very practical instruction about you and how you give. And this morning, we're going to read about how to give a great offering, all right? And we're talking about money, but we're talking about a lot of other things too. How to give a great offering. How to, how to give a sacrifice of yourself to the Lord. How to give a sacrifice and an offering that is honorable unto Him. And here we start in verse 16. Paul writes, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition... We are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Would that God may say that about us one day. 
We represented the church well and brought honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. A passage about the church. If you are entrenched in a very privatized and individualized form of faith, this chapter challenges you to get out of that and to see how you are connected to the larger body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is the gathering of the saints of the Lord Jesus. It's the people of God. And that is a huge dimension of walking with God in this planet in our day and time is to be part of an assembly of believers that is carrying forth the gospel in the community and in their world. It's just vitally important and it's an it's a integral part of salvation. When you got baptized, you were baptized into the body of Christ. We are connected to the body from the very moment of our salvation. It is a social event as well as an individual event to receive Jesus as Savior because he places you into the body. And all of this discussion that Paul is doing now is about the body and how it is connected and not just that local body of the Corinthian church, but the churches in Macedonia who are joining with them to do something very important and the church in Jerusalem which is in such dire need and where Paul wants to go with this offering and bless them. So the first thing that I want to say to you about giving a great offering, a grace offering to the Lord, is be open to God's call. All right? I get that from verse 16. We read verse 16 very quickly. You know, Titus decides to be, be part of this process. And we think, okay, Titus is in Macedonia. He's going to jump in a plane, fly over to uh, Corinth, get the offering, and fly down to Jerusalem. He'll be done, you know, in two days. Not so in the ancient world. For Titus to decide to open his heart to this challenge from the Apostle Paul and from God, for him to decide to participate is a life-changing event for him. This is months out of his life. This is dangerous roads and dangerous seas. This is a change for him that will change the course of his life to be part of this journey, this offering. So when he goes to Corinth, he is not a man who is given nothing and who wants them to give him their money so he can use it. He is a man who has given perhaps the greatest gift of all to the Jerusalem church. He is taking months out of his life to be part of this offering. The Apostle Paul is the same way. The Apostle Paul who is making this appeal, he could have stayed in his former religion, he could have been part, perhaps, of the Sanhedrin one day. He was a rising star among his Jewish brethren. But the gospel struck him hard. He went down on the Damascus Road. He could not deny what he heard and saw that day. His heart was transformed. He was called to the Gentiles. And he gave everything. He poured it all out. So when Paul makes this appeal, this is not somebody who has no stake who's given nothing. This is the man who's laid it all down, who though he had the education, the resources, the connection, and was himself a Roman citizen, on his way to the top of his profession, he laid it all down for the sake of the crucified Savior. He's given it all, along with Titus, 
So Titus is open to the word of God to his heart, in part because the Apostle Paul listened to God as well. He saw the work of God in the Apostle's life, and he heard the appeal of God in his own heart. Listen to God today. God is the one who opened the heart of Titus to this dramatic gift and change of life that the journey represents. And God is the one who is speaking to you. And when you feel the movement of your heart and, and feel the drawing of the Spirit inside, listen! That's how God communicates His Word. That's how He speaks to us. He speaks through the Word of the Scripture and He speaks through the drawing and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let God talk to you. Let God open your heart today. Paul talks to these Corinthians and he's saying, open your heart to us. That's 2 Corinthians 6.13, but it's not the only place he talks that way to these Corinthians. He says, open your heart up, would you? Don't shut me out. Don't close me down. Open your heart up. Would you do that? Would you open your heart up? For this 30-minute session, would you open your heart up and just let God speak to you? Listen to what he says, how he draws you, where he takes you. I want you to remember now the advice and counsel of godly people from your past. See, when... When Paul encouraged Titus, Titus listened because of who he knew Paul was. There are a thousand Twitters and emails and text messages that you will receive over the next few weeks. Some of you, you'll probably receive that many tomorrow, all right? Your inbox is full. And many of those come from people who are faceless to you, even nameless to you. You have no idea of their character, who they are, what they might do, what their own personal life is about. So I want you to remember today people that you really know. The folks who brought the Word of God first to you, who opened the Scriptures to you, your grandmother, your aunt, that faithful deacon or friend who cared for you and you watched his life and you knew who he was and in your heart you know he's a hero. And if you were going to identify a man of integrity on this planet, you would go to him and say, at least I know him. We listen to too many voices about whom we know nothing. We don't know a thing about them. Sometimes we forward their blabber and pass it on to others without once considering the integrity of their character or the truthfulness of what they say. We need to be careful that we do not conform our lives to a din of voices about whom we know nothing. In the Scripture, integrity and character are of the utmost importance when you start responding and shaping your own life. So Titus listens to the appeal of the great apostle. Listen to the people that you trust. We need godly counsel. Be open 
to God's call. Adopt an enthusiastic attitude. Okay? Now, I didn't bring up the word enthusiastic just out of the air. It's in the text. Enthusiasm is in the text. You know, it is built from a Greek word, entheos. And it had theos in the middle of enthusiasm. That's why the T-H-U is there. This was a word that was sort of the divine inspiration. You realize how important your attitude is to the life you're living and how you experience your circumstances and the people around you. Okay? I'm not saying it's exclusively your attitude. Some of you go through great trials like Job, and I cannot comprehend it. I don't know why things have fallen upon you as they have. Why the grief has come your way. So I'm not saying everybody is experiencing the same thing all the time. But I will say this. Your attitude is vitally important to how you experience life. I heard somebody this week who is simply a cynic. That's all. They are cynical about everything. Cynical about sincerity, about meaning, about love, about happiness, and everything else. And they are experiencing life with this frown that pulls down the corners of their mouth and hunches their shoulders, and they're just walking around on the planet like this, you know? It's just miserable. That's all it is. These people who are happy, they're just denying life. Hey, you've got a choice. You can look at the darkness or you can look at the light. You know? You can say to yourself, the fundamental reality of living on this planet is dying and being buried and that's it. And that's what life's about. Or, you can say the fundamental reality of living on this planet is that I am created by a God who loves me and has a plan for my life. You get to choose what attitude you're going to take. I want you to do an attitude check now. Listen to the Holy Spirit this morning. Open your heart up. And let God check your attitude. I want you to let him check it for fear. Are you walking through this planet afraid? Do you do fear talk a lot to your children and the ones you love? Is your mind and heart really full of foreboding? Are you fearful? Often the fearful are linked in Scripture with the unbelieving. I want to ask you another question. Just open your heart up. Let God talk to you. Are you bitter? Does the bitterness come out in different ways at different times? And sometimes you're angry and you don't know why. And sometimes you fly off the handle and it's not the event right then. It's the seething mass inside of you that just keeps boiling up in you. And the things you say are just a rotten gas that rises to the top 
from something that is rotting inside. Open your heart up. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you. Does your attitude honor God? You know, when, when Paul said to Titus, Titus, we need to get this offering done. I want you to be a part of it. Titus welcomed the appeal. He welcomed it. He said, oh, thank you. Thank you for giving the appeal to me. You made your appeal to me. I'm happy about that. He welcomed the appeal that Paul gave. We don't always welcome the appeal. Sometimes we're very suspicious when we hear the appeal. But Titus knew Paul to be a man of integrity. So when the appeal came, he said, All right, thank you for telling me. Titus is enthusiastic. Here's something I want you to consider, okay? As an attitude of life. Be eager. Be eager. Be enthusiastic about living. Consider making love, joy, and peace your companions every day. Consider clothing your persona, your words, your behavior in these virtues of the Christian life. Would you consider thinking about the things that are of good report, if they're full of virtue and full of praise. Think about these things, the things that are honorable and true and lovely. Would you consider asking God to change a perspective so that your attitude is more fully the attitude of the Lord Jesus? See, Paul instructs the churches in one point, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's the word for mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians chapter 2. And what kind of attitude was that? It was an attitude of humility, of service, and self-surrender. That's the attitude that the Son of God displayed as He walked on the planet. So I want to ask you, can you emulate that attitude? Can you serve Jesus with the kind of enthusiasm with which you go to the ball game? When you go to the Saints game, do you arrive in the third quarter? You know, you got those tickets on the 50-yard line. You going to show up in the third quarter? No, right? You're showing up an hour early. You want to watch the warm-up. You want to be there for the whole thing. Now, are you going to leave in the middle of the fourth quarter? Maybe if they're 45 points behind, uh, ahead, you know. If the game's already over, you might take off. But if the game's still in question, you're not leaving that seat. You're staying until the end. And I was there, you know, in some of those great victories last year. We stayed not only to the end. We stayed for the post-game celebration. If we could just transfer some of the energy and enthusiasm and eagerness that we connect to Saints football and LSU football 
and say, Lord, let me be that full of anticipation. Let me get up early or stay up late because the Holy Spirit is working in me. I've got a job to do, and He's called me to do it, and I'm ready to give and ready to go. Lord, give me that kind of attitude like Jesus had. Fill me with love and joy and peace every day. Look, I've asked you to be open. Open your heart up. Would you let the Holy Spirit speak to you about a correction of attitude that maybe just needs to happen? Titus takes the initiative here. On his own initiative, he participates in this offering. You know, you're not going to start your relationship with God. You won't be the first one to make a move. God's already made his move. You're not going to meet God halfway either. God already sent his son Jesus from the heavenly throne room to this tiny planet, third rock from the sun. <laughs> that was a long ways that Jesus came, amen? And he humbled himself more than we will ever know to lay aside the prerogatives of deity and take on the form of a man and, and enrobe himself in flesh on this planet. He already came a long, long way. And not only did he do that in his incarnation, but all your life, he's been pursuing you. He's been after you. And if you don't know it now, you'll see it in retrospect once you give up running from him and let him catch you. Once you finally say, oh, Lord, I give up. I'm not running anymore. I'm not fighting you anymore. I am surrendering. God, here I am. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Then you will look back over the history of your life and say, wow, God chased me. He caught me from behind. He is the one who initiates in our relationship with him. And he does it because he passionately loves us and he made us for himself. And Titus is following the cues of the Heavenly Father when he on his own initiative says, look, I want to be part of this offering. He is setting a pattern we ought to follow. You know, sometimes we wait to be asked and sometimes that's good. But sometimes we need to say like Isaiah, Lord, here am I. God just says, whom shall I send? He sends the invitation out to the planet. And Isaiah says, Lord, here am I. Send me. It was a great moment in the life of the prophet. He records it in detail in his book. And it will be a great moment in your life. When you say to the God who pursues you, Lord, here I am. Send me. You may be afraid. You may think, oh, I don't know what God will do with me if I write my name on that check and make him fill in the amount. If I give him the blank check of my life, I'm not sure what will happen. I don't want to be religiously weird. I don't know what he's going to call me to do. I'm, a, I'm worried about that. Here's the thing. God's best for you is truly, deeply, absolutely, and with confidence the best 
of the best. God's best for you is what you want down deep inside. Would you open your heart up to God's call? Would you listen to the Spirit as He talks to you? Would you say, God, whatever you want, that's what I want. I am interested and intrigued by the Apostle as he talks about the process of the offering. And I would say to you, in our giving, we need to create an honorable process. And he mentions that the men who are carrying this offering were chosen by the churches. And he says, we want to do everything that's right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but in the eyes of men. We want this to be administered well and rightly, this offering that we're receiving. And he sets up this process that is full of integrity so that there are multiple people. You know, when you give your offering here, we try to take it up in an orderly fashion so we don't have bills and coins flying everywhere. We take it up very carefully. And there are always at least two or three people with that offering just for integrity's sake. And we have people, multiple people, who count that offering on Monday morning and we make that deposit and we take as much care as we can with the gifts that we receive. And we try to give an accounting of every penny that is given. This very week, I had a long story given to me by someone who gave money to an institution, not here in New Orleans, and that institution took their designated gift and used it for something else. That individual wrote a scathing letter to the institution, and you know what? That institution did the right thing and fired the person responsible for the redirection of that money from what was designated because they were lying in their own pockets with it. Be careful that you don't take the precious fruit of your labor and give it to somebody who's lying in his own pockets. My salary, Bob's salary, Robert's salary, it is set by a personnel committee which you elect. If you gave $100,000 today, it would not affect how much money I receive personally for my life. As, and that is true for every staff person. It's all laid out in a personnel budget. Our benefits, our expenses, and our salary. You know why we do that? To honor God, number one. We want to honor God because you give your gifts to God when you put those in the plate. That's an offering to the Lord. And Paul says here, we want to honor the Lord with how we handle this offering. And I would say to you, you be careful about how you give and who you give to in a day when you and I receive appeals every day on by the phone and through the mail and all of that. There are so many things that you can support. Do you know what they're doing? with your gifts. This church here is completely supported by the gifts of God's people that are here in this room and connected to this fellowship. And the distribution of the offering is controlled by the people in this room who elect their finance team and vote on the budget. And that is a deliberate process that we are seeking to honor the Lord with. And we want it to be right in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Now I want to conclude with this. 
maintain a cooperative spirit. I want to point out to you verse 23. Okay? As for Titus, he is my partner. You know what that word is? Koinonos. It's the same root as koinonia. He is my fellowshipper. He shares with me in the common possession. Somebody pointed out to me just yesterday morning, one of my cousins who is a Bible scholar and a teacher, he said, you know, the word koinonia, we translate it as food, fun, and fellowship. But he said most of the times that word is used in its various forms, it is connected to money. They shared what they had. The sharing in the Scripture is often financial. And do you know, you are not really connected until you are invested. It's a lot easier to walk away from the fellowship where you've just had food and fun than if you have financially contributed to the work of the ministry in that place. Once you sow the seeds of finances and you begin the discipline of regular, faithful, and generous giving to your house of worship, to your local church, you become hard, hardwired some way into that fellowship. It really matters that you are giving financially and it is part of koinonia. I remember when I was studying myself koinonia and I wondered, why didn't the reformers make koinonia one of the signs of the church? They said, you know, the sacraments and the word. The word, why didn't Luther add in koinonia? It seems to me koinonia is an essential of the church. I really believe it is. It's an essential dimension of the church. But it's not just a thin koinonia. It is a real sharing of my life. That's the word. That's what it intends. And when the apostle says, Titus is a partner, he's not talking about, you know, he was my partner for uh, the hearts game we played. He's my partner. We are in this thing together. We are fully invested in the work of ministry. One of the great joys of serving the Lord is to be fully invested with others I love being in the yoke with you. I do. I love being in the yoke with you. I look around this congregation and I see such talented, wonderful people who serve the Lord Jesus in so many diverse ways every week. And I want you to know, I love being in the yoke with you. Brother Larry, I love being in the yoke with you down there, Rachel Sims. I do. And I love being in the yoke with you, deacon brothers in this room. It is a joy to me. I enjoy the partnership and the fellowship and the work of ministry. And I couldn't do this if we were not all invested together in what God is doing in this place. But to be fully invested takes a cooperative spirit. And when Paul talks about being a partner and fellow worker among you, he is talking about a task that is sometimes difficult and challenging to be part of something where you are cooperating together in the common cause of the gospel. You know where cooperation really gets its biggest, biggest test? When you are challenged to support what you yourself do not control. 
Sometimes we want to control our money all the way to its expenditure. And we don't want to give to the general budget because we, want, we like this ministry over here and the general budget, that just goes everywhere. I don't want to help with electricity, you know, and insurance. I want to pick out my favorite things. Part of cooperation is saying, Lord, I'm part of this fellowship. Not everything that goes on in this fellowship is something I would choose to do. But I choose to be part of it because I am a fellow worker. I am a partner in this ministry. And I understand, and you need to understand, that you see the work of the church from your particular giftedness. And if you don't remember a thing, you remember this, okay? If you were a teacher... You want the church to teach. You think that's the most important thing the church does. You need to teach. And if you have the gift of mercy, you want to be out there on Wednesday at the feeding station and you don't understand why there are not 700 people down in Central City because that's your giftedness. That's where your heart is. And if you are a prophet, you are concerned about truth and lies. And every Sunday and every way, you want people to know what the truth is and know what the lie is. You are concerned about that above all things. And if you are a giver, it is giving. And if you have the gift of helps, you're wondering, why does everybody have to be up there on the platform? We need to be in the back of all these things. And we want to give our help from from uh, the invisible places. We don't need to be recognized. See, we always see the work of the church from our giftedness. And let me tell you, if we collapse the work of the church into just your gift of evangelism or teaching or mercy, the church would be worse for it. This room is intentionally diversified by the Holy Spirit. He adds to the body sovereignly as He sees fit. Are you hearing me now? We can't all do what you are gifted and called to do. The church works best when you do what you are gifted and called to do and you lay it down for the sake of Christ and you are a full partner in the work of ministry. Not because it's only your giftedness which happens in the church, but because you understand you're part of a body. And the hand cannot say to the foot, because you're not a hand, I don't need you. You understand the metaphor? We are a body of believers with a diversity of gifts, and it requires cooperation from the members of the body for you even to touch the end of your nose with your finger. <laughs> my hands got to cooperate with my eye and my elbow for me to even get that done. God is building and has built a powerful congregation here. He is using this congregation marvelously in lots of different ways it is happening because of a cooperative spirit among the family where people are willing to invest themselves even though all the things that happen may be different from what they would choose. They are investing in the work of the ministry. Brothers and sisters, some of you are wanting to bring a great offering to God but you've never offered yourself. I want you to keep your heart open for a minute. I want to talk to you about giving yourself first. 
There's a surrender that has to happen in you before you can really give yourself. You must acknowledge that you cannot earn God's love and salvation. All the activity that you might do, all the character building that you might have, all the religious exercises cannot earn for you a place in heaven. To give yourself first to the Lord, you must take all the pride out of it and say, Lord, I know who I am and you are the perfect God and your standard is absolute perfection and that's not me. I know I am a sinner in need of a Savior. You can only receive God's unearned favor when you are willing to surrender the earning part of it. When you give that up, when you say, okay, Lord, no longer on my merits or on my record, but only on the blood of Jesus Christ, your perfect Son, do I come to you. And when you come in Jesus alone, trusting in His sacrifice alone for your salvation, His death upon the cross for your sin, that's when you're giving yourself first. That's giving yourself first. That's the grace offering he wants from you. The surrender of who you are. He gave his son for you. His son died on the cross for you. If it was possible for you to save yourself by good deeds and good behavior, the death of Christ on the cross would mean nothing. Why did Jesus die on that cross in the first place? Because all of us needed his perfect sacrifice because we are sinners. Would you open your heart to God's plan of salvation for you personally. That is, the death of His perfect Son, Jesus, upon the cross for you. And would you take the step of faith today and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I'm opening my heart to you as best I know how. I hear you knocking on my door, and I want you to come in. That act of volition that purpose of will in your heart, to open your heart to the God who has pursued you, that's what he's looking for. And that's the new birth. When Jesus makes you new, it's salvation when you confess with your mouth, Jesus alone is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Would you do it? Would you trust him? Would you give yourself to him? It's the greatest offering you can give.